everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. This is show number 11 for Tuesday, October 27th, 2009. Once again, I'm Paul Fox. And over to Lion Rock and across Victoria Harbor, I'm Kevin Ma. And we are back after a short uh, little furlough of about a week. Kevin, you've been off watching lots and lots of movies. You've been really busy. Um, yep. Anything exciting in the past week or so since we've been uh, sort of off the air? Um, just been watching a lot of movies. Um, I only have three movies left to go in the festival at yeah. about 21. You were and, saying uh, you were saying on Twitter you're a little bit depressed when you sort of hit the halfway point. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, you watch so many movies that you wanted to watch and you watch so many good movies over such a short period of time that you're, you're busy, but then you wish that it could go on and on and on because you're watching so many good movies. So last time we were on um, with... Uh, with Ross, uh, aka Kozo, you were saying that I think you had twenty-two films that you had yes. you had gotten tickets for. What what is your overall impression of the twenty-two that you picked? Um, majority of them good ones. Any any bad ones in there? Um, there was a really, I wouldn't say it's a bad one, but uh, Shio Sono's um, Bicycle Size. It was his first uh, film made with the PF Film Scholarship. It was just very strange. It was one of those films, uh, it's the first time ever happened to me, where I fell asleep for 20 minutes, I woke up, and the entire audience was just as confused as I was. <laughs> and it, it was a very strange film, and I didn't expect it it would be like that. But um, no, thankfully, most of the picks were quite good, especially uh, Mother, um, Koreeda's Air Doll, um, opening film Thirst, quite good. I'll be writing a review for that. And um and as I writ, wrote in my blog, um a Malaysian film called Talent Time. It was very excellent, um mm. quite good. Yeah, I've I've heard I've heard heard some mixed things about Thirst. I'm I'm still not sure if I'll get in to go see that one or I'll I'll wait for um video. I've heard it's it's not your sort of typical uh vampire story. Oh, it's not part. typical, but but it is quite fun. It it's violent and it, it is quite dark, but I think the comedy factor was quite surprising, and it was, it's actually quite a fun movie if if you're able to open up for for more I guess extreme vampire movie. That's mm. not like the ones you're used to watching. For now, uh, let's move on to our news. And this week we've got we're, we've got only a couple stories that we're really going to talk about for local news. Uh, the first is that uh, there's a, been uh, about 10 films lined up for China as Chinese New Year films uh, for 2010. Kevin, do you have the listing of these films? Yes, this is, um, I think this is the most film I've ever seen for Chinese New Year period. Uh, it's the most I can remember. Um, it starts on January 28th with uh, the new uh, Raymond Wong film. Um, I think this all swell ends well 2010. Co-directed by Herman Yao, believe it or not. Oh, okay. um, and then February 2nd, we have the new Jackie Chan film, Little Soldiers. Um, and then the following week, we have Donnie, uh, Return of the Donnie with uh, Daniel Lee's latest. Um, and the same day, you have Yuan Ping returning with True Legend, coming 2010, as the now, trailer says. Now, have you seen the trailer for that? I've seen seven. Seven of them. That's so, it's so annoying. It is the most annoying trailer I've ever seen. I mean... <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't really think it's a trailer. I think it's just a continuous TV clip. Yeah, it's just like... It's it's just like segments from the movie. You can tell it's... it's They're not really that polished. They're not really that finished. And then it's just this big graphic, you know, coming, coming, coming. And it's just... It's really annoying. I mean, I, I, I understand the need for promotion, but that's just... That's just um, I don't know. Although I, I will say that Jay Chow looks... Kind of, kind of funny in that sort of eagle costume getup that he's wearing. No, I think Jay Chow will will be the next. Will be will have the Nicholas uh, pimp finger in the film. I wouldn't be surprised because <laughs> he has that. He has the white hair. He has a similar look in there. Yeah, and yeah. I'm but wondering. The, the I'm, is, I, I really, I really. Do you know what the story is about? Because, I mean, it looks like it's dealing with um, several legends, and I'm. I, he kind of looks like maybe an immortal character or something. I'm not sure what to make of it. Just. Because you really don't see anything. You just basically you just see a couple, you know, sort of uh, action sequences. You see Michelle Yeoh sort of jumping around a mountain. You mm -hmm. see, um, as though she, she's kind of sweating, toiling over labor, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's about it. Yeah. What the film is shares the main character shares the same name as the main character in the Stephen Chow film, King of Beggars. Mm. But 
everything I've seen the trailer doesn't seem to overlap with what I know of about the legend. It's mm-hmm. very strange. But the thing is, you have someone like Juman Chirk, who, who is a uh, established martial arts actor. But the thing is, the last time someone played a role was Stephen Chow. Yeah. So how do you overshadow someone like Stephen Chow? Yeah. But um, I'm guessing with the the cast and if the echo can sell well, if they're if they actually get to cutting a full trailer, this might be this might have a chance. But it's going against Donnie's movie, mm. so and no one beats Donnie. <laughs> well, we'll yeah. see. We'll see. Okay, uh, so what, on the what else is day, on on the list? Yes, on the same day, February 11th, you have um, TVB's uh, House of Seventy Two Tenants remake. Um, co-directed by Eric Zung and Patrick Kong. Now, I I think I saw some clips. Um, some outtakes from this on TVB tonight when I was actually having dinner. Oh wow! And, and they were they were doing it was it was just showing uh, Eric Zhang doing some direction with a couple of the stars. Do you, who who all do you know the cast of the film? Yeah. Um, um, as far as I know, it'll be some TVB actors. I'm sure many yeah. of them you you will see you've seen in Turning Point. Uh, but the lead cast will be Alan Tam, um, Jackie Chan. Yeah, I saw uh, I saw Jackie Chung in the TV spot and um, yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised to see Jackie Chan signing up for this. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm um, glad because I mentioned last time he's uh, somebody who I wish would you know do more films because I really like seeing him in films. Yes, and he is good at doing comedy, so we'll see. Um, also, you have Anita Yuan, and I assume that Eric Zhang will be in the movie, but I'm not too sure. Yeah. Now, um, I mean, this yeah. is a among I, I would say, you know, film academics. This is you know House of Seventy Two Tenants is you know, one of the pinnacle films that they see is sort of defining the emergence of Hong Kong cinema, in mm-hmm. particular Cantonese language Hong Kong cinema back in the 70s. And as such, it's it's kind of got a special place in uh, many at many parts of academia with regard to film. Yes. What, what do you think about this in terms of them doing sort of a remake, um, you know, and especially given the current nature of cinema? I mean, it's an interesting choice to use in maybe the hopes of sort of rebooting that, but at the same time, it seems kind of a, like a gimmicky choice to try and turn to uh, when you've got a film like, you know, Kung Fu Hustle, which basically was borrowing a lot of the same elements from that and was successful in doing so. This may seem like, you know, maybe a little bit late to the party. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you What do you think about that? Well, I think TVB has done all they can to make this project as legitimate as pros- possible. I mean, they give it a Lunar New Year date, so you already have an expectation of what kind of movie it will be. And they casted, you know, legitimate actors like Jackie Chan and Anita Yuan, um, despite Alan Tam and the rest of the TVB people. But I think they've done all they can. I mean, House of the 7210 is not really known as a art house film. You know, I mean, it's it is a very commercial film in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Is pretty, so I'm I'm not particularly um, troubled about TVB remaking it as long as they, you know, pull it off well. But, you know, with Patrick Kong um, handling this big cast, this big um, um, Lunar New Year movie, I, I myself, I don't have much confidence in it. I don't know about you. Mm. Well, well, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I'm always hopeful that local films will be good. Um, yes. All right, we, what, what else is, what else are we, can we look forward to? Okay, so following week, uh, February 18th, you have uh, Chow Yun-Fat as Confucius with uh, Zhou Xun in her second movie in that period. Um, you also have uh, Jackson Ha, who is a well-known uh, photographer, directing a movie with uh, Nicholas Se and Bobby Xu, uh, also in her second film during the period, uh, following um, something else we'll mention later. Um, and also there's a new Jeff Lau film with uh, Gigi Lun and Ronald Chang. On the same day, you also have the James Yuan film with uh, Miriam Yuan, Alan Tam again, and Zhang Zhen. And lastly, um, I want to go back here, February 4th, before all these movies come out, you have Wang Jing's latest opus, uh, Future X-Cops. Ah, yes, Future X-Cops. And, and we've both seen the trailer and have to give a little bit of thanks to Pro on the message on the comments for you know bringing it to my attention because I hunted down the trailer when he talked about it. And I, I guess he was saying that he had heard it being compared to sort of the uh, Chinese version of Mega Man, which I can see some similarity uh, in some of the clips that we see. But you've seen the trailer. What, what are your thoughts on this Wong Jing masterpiece? 
Oh, it looked even worse than the Avenging Fist, and we all know how that movie turned out. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what 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 the hell was Andy Lau doing there. I mean, you think that he's earned enough cred to you know pick and choose roles, but no, he goes in. Well, even if it's want, I know it's wanting directing, so I'm not surprised that Andy Lau do a wanting movie. But still, you think? Yeah, and I mean, he's done. I mean, we we can go back through his career, and we can look at films like Future Cops. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, and uh, you know some of the other more uh, cheesy roles that that he's taken on, and who knows? I mean, uh, looking just looking at the trailer, I don't know. Some of the effects look kind of unpolished, and you know maybe they're still going to be working on them in house because it's still a long way off before release. Um, they may clean it up uh, quite a lot, and what we see in that trailer may end up being quite different from what we see on screen. Um, and hey, it's Andy Lau. I mean, I'm willing to give him a chance. And Fan Bingbing. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but here's the thing: we're gonna are we gonna be spoiled by the Storm Warriors, which would have been out two months before that? Are we gonna be so spoiled by the special effects? Because you know it looks really good. Have you seen the latest trailer, Paul? Uh, I I've seen one trailer. I don't know if it's the latest mm-hmm. one, but it, the the trailer that I've seen, um, there's very little Aaron Kwok in the trailer. Is there a newer trailer that I'm? That I need to hunt down. Yeah, there is a third trailer, and it offers uh, more idea of of the plot. Mm. But uh, yeah, I mean the special effects are looking quite good. Mm. So are we going to be spoiled by this big mega special effects driven blockbuster that might turn out to be good, and then we we walk into Wong Jing's future X cops? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah. again, it's 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 a long ways off, and I hate to be down on the film, but I got a very strong. Kung Fu Cyborg vibe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that. But this is like, I mean, I went, when I was hunting it down, I, I posted the link on the site for people to see, but I went over to Andy Lau's site, andylau.com, and he's got it, you know, listed there. You know, go go to this site and see the trailer. So, you know, they're, they're, it's out there and it's being sort of pushed officially. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if this is if what we're seeing there is kind of in the final stage, or this is you know there's still some render work that needs to be done. But you know some of the effects were not did not look all that hot. And I mean the story, I think it's pretty easy to tell that this is a story of a guy from the future, you know, sort of a time cop thing. He's in the future at, for a little bit of, of the time, and then he comes back to the present day, where it's mm-hmm. much much cheaper to actually film narrative. Oh, well, that future's just, that future's just so darn expensive, you know. <laughs> Such stories as H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Jules Verne's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea have challenged mankind. So today, man is successfully probing deep into the mysteries of the universe. Can he penetrate the greatest mystery of all, time itself, to catapult you through time into a world that is yet to be? Why is it that we usually ignore the fourth dimension? You see, we can move in the other three. As the doctor said, up, down, forwards, backwards, sideways. But when it comes to time, we are prisoners. All right, well, let's move on to some news from around the globe. Um, There's a little bit of news that I came across um, through, through a couple links, and that is DreamWorks is going to be producing... A uh, live-action version of *Ghost in the Shell*. Um, this coming uh, article itself coming from Variety, and as I was doing a little bit of digging on this, actually, you can find articles back from 2008 with Spielberg and, and DreamWorks actually purchasing up the rights to *Ghost in the Shell*. Some people have said, you know, uh, the Wachowski brothers already made *The Matrix*, which in a sense was their version of *Ghost in the Shell*, and there, there are stories out there of them using Ghost in the Shell to show to potential investors and producers uh, before they actually made The Matrix, and they were saying, you know, this is what we want to make, like this. Um, what, do you, what do you think about this, Kevin? Do you think that a live-action version, it would be successful or, or is needed at all? The thing is, Ghost in the Shell is, I think it's a cult not a co-following, but a limited following in America. So when they do the Hollywood version, people are just going to come out and people are going to be like, what's so special about this Ghost in the Shell thing? They have no idea what's going on. And the thing is, there's a reason why filmmakers had to turn to animation to make this story. 
and I don't know if if a live action version is even necessary or even called for. Yeah, and I think that there are a couple things. The the one article I think in in that I was reading in the Variety article, I think it was saying that oh, they're planning to do this in three D. So this is going to be the quote unquote next Avatar, which I think is an interesting claim to make because <laughs> Avatar itself isn't even out and it's already being sort of heralded as this, you know, this this landmark film, which it very well may be. But when you're hyping a film that's not even been released yet, I just I don't know that kind of hype really kind of turns me off. But I'm I mean, think this is gonna this is gonna add to the sort of overload 3d this one of those things that that's gonna just bring the trend back down yeah well i mean i i'm a big fan of ghost in the shell i i loved um both of the both of the movies um i've seen both of the the tv series um and the the, the movie that came from the t from the or the video series i should say um and i really liked all of that i think that a film would be able to pull in uh, a sizable audience, but at the same time, like you were saying, this already has, you know, as a series, a pretty, and, and the manga series too, it, you know, it already has a, a certain following. And when you get a, get a following like that, whether it's for any property, whether it's, you know, something like Godzilla or Astro Boy, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, there, there's bound to be a lot of disappointment, particularly when Hollywood gets its hands on something, because, Unfortunately, I in in my experience, the way that Hollywood operates is that there's always too many cooks in the kitchen, and mm -hmm. things get changed and compromises get made, and that's fine because that's the way Hollywood operates. But when you've already got a property that exists, that can change things to such an extent that it really turns people who are fans of that property off, and that's my big fear with this. You know, again, I would love to see them try and do a live action. I think that. You know, now they probably could do it. In the past, when the animations were made, um, they probably couldn't have done it well. Um, but, you know, who knows? We'll have to wait and see how this pans out. I mean, it's DreamWorks, you know, has some big brains working for it. I mean, Spielberg makes pretty good movies. Can't knock him for that. So um, I, I'd say I'm willing to give him a chance, but I'm, I'm hesitant. All right, our next bit of news. Um, Saw 6 is not doing so well. Uh, this is the sixth film of the Saw installments being released, uh, sort of a Holly, Hollywood Halloween uh, type of movie. And apparently the, the Paranormal Activity, the little indie film, is really kicking, tail, kicking its tail in terms of uh, box office return, which I think is just great. I mean, you know, I, I, to me, that I really like seeing when a, you know, a small little independent kind of thing can come up and take down the big boys. I don't know. I always kind of root for the underdog, but honestly, I haven't seen any of the Saw movies. I think I watched Saw Four was the last one I saw, and I, that was a video rental. I've never seen any of them in the theater, um, even one, two, and three. Um, I watched as video rentals. Not sure when I'll get around to seeing Part Five or Part Six. I really loved the first one. I loved the concept of the first one because the first one itself in much the same way that, you know, Paranormal Activity was sort of this small little indie cult film. That's basically what the first one was. It was a couple of guys who had a small budget and an idea of two guys locked in a room. And, you know, this this sort of, you know, um, game idea that gets played out as, as over time, of course, it gets turned into this torture porn uh, type of genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what do you think, Kevin? Are you, are you interested in these types of films at all? You know, the Hostels or the Saws or? No, I watched I watched about thirty minutes of Hostel two, and I had about enough of torture porn. But it's ironic that you said it's nice to see the the um, the small film uh, kick the kick the little big guy's ass because, like you said, Saw itself was a small underdog. It was an independent film, and and Paranormal Activity is actually bought up by a big studio, Paramount, who has you know, to their credit, who has promoted the film very, very well. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to see a, a return or a, at least a down downturn of torture porn. Yeah, I'm more than thankful to see that because I don't, I don't know why people keep going to these things. Well, you know, I, I know that it's a genre of horror and it appeals to some people. It, it, it's never really appealed to me. I really liked the, the first Saw film because mm -hmm. of the dynamic of the elements that were going on. Um, but then, you know, later it just became, you know, sort of Hollywoodized over the top 
mm-hmm. um, going down that sort of. I, I won't say it's it's as deep into torture porn as some of the other films out there, but it's certainly playing along the, that path. It's it's moved away from simply the horror genre or um, what it started out as in that first film to to something else, which is fine. I mean, it's fine, but it's interesting because you know you think about a lot of these very long-running series you know if you go back and you look at and i know they're rebooting it now the nightmare on elm street the very first one or you look at um the very first um halloween or the very first friday the 13th you know they all kind of had this sort of out out of nowhere low budget but providing some really good scares and some really good entertainment and then over time they just get made into sort of regurgitated sequels that just try and keep pushing that envelope and pushing that edge into stuff that's just too far over the top, at least for me. Mm-hmm. I think the Hollywood needs to learn that no movie should go for longer than six installments. I mean, not even Star Wars went longer than six installments. So mm-hmm. I doubt, I'm hoping that Lionsgate which, will Which for it. many people was three installments, far too much. <laughs> see, yeah, see, there you go, see? So I'm hoping that Lionsgate will, will finally learn, you know, to quit while they're ahead because Saw 6, even though it lost to Paranormal Activity, it was still only made for $11 million. So I'm sure Lionsgate was still turning profit, but I hope... Oh, yeah. I they... mean, especially in when you get into aftermarket and the video, that's why they keep making these, you know, because that's where yeah. they make a lot of their money. Yeah. But you can only hope that they learn to quit while they're ahead. Yeah, let's hope. time for our east screen films and this week we've got two films to talk about since we've been away uh, our first film coming from uh, hong kong and uh, i guess you'd say it's also a little bit of a macau production and that is poker king um kevin you want to tell us a little bit about poker king sure uh poker king stars um louis ku and lao cheng wan um lao cheng wan he, he runs a large casino um in macau but um after after the owner um died and then uh, after eight months of being on the job he decides to bring back bring back um the old man's son played by lewis Koo. and um and you know lewis Koo, he's a poker he's an online poker expert but um of course when time when, when the time comes to play real poker he's totally uh he's an absolute idiot so lao ching won and somehow turns evil and uh kicks Lewis out of the hotel, out of the corporation, and leaves him on the street. And then there, Lewis has to learn how to mend uh, or, or, or how to survive on his own. And so we learn the rules of poker while also learning how to make kicks. Um, I don't know, Paul, what did you, what, what did you think of the film? Um, well, I actually kind of liked it. Um, I, I went in thinking that this was simply going to be sort of a um, an exposition for... Macau, Macau casinos, which in in a sense it is, it is, um, it but is. but it's not. I I think it's not as in your face um, with that idea as it could have been. I mm-hmm. think that personally, I like the chemistry between Louis Ku and Lao Ching Wan. I think they've worked well together in the movies in movies of the past. I really liked, um, um, uh, what is it? Liku Liku Sanin Choi. Um, um, Fat Choi Spirit. Yeah, Fat Choi Spirit. Um, is one of my favorite New Year films. That's sort of like a New Year's ritual film that I end up watching every year at Chinese New Year. Um, I, I, I like the two of them together. 
um, especially when they're sort of paired off in, in this rivalry. Um, and I think it worked here on some levels. The one thing that I think that didn't work, though, was the role that Louis Koo was trying to take up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's, yes, the, the he seemed, juvenile, he yeah. seemed much too old for, for that. And um, it just, it, it, you know, and I know that by the end, he's supposed to have, you know, he's, he's portraying something that's a little bit different, which is okay. But I think for the beginning of the film, um, through, I'd say, about two-thirds of it, um, I was picturing somebody like Sean Yu or a younger star uh, in that position. Um, Actually, I think co-star Won Yao Nam would, would have been fine for it. He's young enough, and he has that face to play that kind of character. Yeah, yeah, he could, he could have done it uh, very easily. Um, and, you know, the, to mention some of the other cast, you mentioned Won Yao Nam, it's got Steffi Tang, which was one of the reasons mm-hmm. I rushed out to watch it. <laughs> um, it's also got Joe Koo, who is sadly underused. I mean, she just basically walks around and doesn't, I think she's got like two lines in the, in the whole thing. And I'm, I'm just saying in the back of my mind, come on, you know, I mean, uh, get her to say something, get her to emote or something. And she, she finally does towards the end, but for most of the film, she's just kind of there as, as sort of this eye candy piece. Um, no, she was fine. She was working her posture throughout the film. And yeah. that was, as always pleasurable to watch um but yeah it's it's steffi tang plays the romantic lead uh Mm -hmm. if you will for lewis Koo, which is just i i mean it just seems like a bit of an odd pairing to me have they been paired off before i Uh, i can remember i I don't think i don't i don't i from the from yeah my memory is not as good as it used to be but uh, i don't think they've been paired off before i just didn't their chemistry didn't really work i mean because you're you're so used to seeing her with somebody like alex fong Right, you know, right. That, 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 that to suddenly, you know, and 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 part of the reason I think too is because she can be made to look and act more mature, but that's not how they used her here. They used her as the very typical, quiet, good girl, cute, you know, cute dresses Steffi character uh, that yeah. she often plays, and 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 I think that that just didn't fit well uh, the the mm-hmm. two of them. Uh, but I yeah. think that the, the overall story. Um, I, I liked it. I liked, you know, I liked the, some of the relationships that they showed him, you know, build up with some of the other people. Um, I think that, uh, 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 Josie was a riot. Um, I, I like Josie, the, the relationship between Josie and, and Lao Cheng Wan. I like that. Which was, it was just kind of really weird. And, and I think that's why it worked for me. Um, right. because, you know, he... Lao Ching Wan has definitely got, I think, of, of all the characters, he's definitely got one of the more interesting characters, which you come to understand over time. And it's kind of predictable. I mean, I kind of figured out um, what was going on with his character. Um, they do try and twist it at the end. But yeah, his his relationship and his relationship with, with Josie, I w- wish they would have had more scenes with him and, and Josie Ho because I think they worked really well together. Um, but the 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 core of this story, if we get down to it, um, ultimately comes back to gambling. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, I, we've seen so many gambling films over the years that there's not a whole lot that you can do to make them that interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that what they did do with, with some, of the, some of the bluffing and some of the... I was really interested in the, the idea of the difference between sort of online gaming, you know, and being really, you know, showing that, okay, this guy was really good uh, you know, as an online gambler, but when it gets in the real world, it just doesn't work because it's a totally different kind of game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked that aspect. So I'd say on the whole, you know, I came I came away really enjoying it um, mm-hmm. more than I thought I would. Well, I didn't like the film as much as you did, Paul. I mean, it. it I liked certain aspects of it. I liked uh, what it was. I it, what it sold. It sold what it was supposed to sell. Um, I like Lao Cheng Wan, and like you were saying, the pairing. I like how they twist the pairing into an antagonistic relationship. Um, that's something you don't see very often in these two. And um, and I really like the cameos. You remember the Lamb Street, Lamb Street cameo? Yeah. And uh, that was that was, that was one of the best, best parts. Yeah, right, right. That was funny. Yeah, my problem with the the acting is that you know Steffi was sort of mugging up in the first half, so was Lewis and all these people, but only Lao Cheng Wan really pulled it off. I thought. And and the filmmaking was really dubious, and um, the 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 character arc, um, 
doesn't really work for me. It's just really predictable. But as a commercial Hong Kong film, it's entertaining enough, especially since, since it was uh, two hours long. Two yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was surprisingly longer than I thought it would be. It, it, right. it looks like, you know, definitely something that would fit into the typical 90 minute film, but yeah, it actually yeah. goes a bit beyond that. And yeah. And so it dragged a little bit in the middle, but there was enough fun to be had that I think is, is worn at least one, one watch, especially if you're fans of Louis Ku and Lo Ching Wan. All right, uh, let's move on to our next uh, East screen film, and that is uh, The Message coming from China. Now, Kevin, you haven't seen this. Nope, haven't made time to watch yeah. it. Um, I actually made sort of a split-second decision to go and watch this when I had a free moment last week. As I'd mentioned before, I wasn't really sure if I was too keen on seeing it because of the fact that it's dealing with this sort of historical time period and because it's kind of based in, it's rooted in reality, and there's there's some allusions to torture and things. Actually, there there is some torture that goes on in the film, um, but it's it's done in a way that's I I won't I won't say it's mild, um, but it was it was bearable to, to get through. But basically, this tells the story of uh, 1942 uh, in Nanjing during the Japanese occupation. Again, this is prior to um, the United States entering into World War II. So the Japanese was primarily focused on keeping control of what they were taking over in Asia. Um, so they were occupying much of China during this time. And there was a split in the Nationalists' Party. So if you've, if you've, seen, uh, if you've seen Founding of a Republic, um, and you you remember some of the characters um, who Chiang Kai-shek was surrounding himself. Uh, well, part he was part of this national this larger national party, uh, nationalist party uh, during this period because this happens before that. And during this period, a group of the nationalists separated themselves off from Chiang Kai-shek and went to join forces with the Japanese. Basically, uh, there were Japanese sympathizers. And so this basically is telling the story of a group of rebels who are, who are, who are moles within the security organization um, that's part of so sort of the nationalist security wing that's working with the Japanese. And there are a bunch of assassinations of Japanese officers and sympathizers that have been going on. And basically they've figured out um, through doing some security intelligence that the mole is within the organization and that there are only a, a group of about five people who could possibly be um, the mole. And the mole, is they want to find the mole who will lead them to uh, this person called the Phantom, who's sort of the head of the, uh, the resistance organization. And so ultimately what happens is five, five of these members of the security bureau are taken out to this castle, this old mansion out in the middle of nowhere, um, for questioning. And so then it becomes sort of this psychological drama uh, as these five individuals are given various pressures and pitted against each other to try and get them to sort of uh, turn, turn tails on each other to reveal uh, who, is the, who is actually the, the mole, the informant. Um, so it becomes sort of this, uh, you know, sort of this psychological cat and mouse game to try and uncover who the informant is. Um, it's pretty easy to figure out, I'd say about midway through the film. They don't really try and make a secret of it. But there are a couple of twists that get thrown in. Um, and again, you're dealing with, because the, the, the security bureau who's investigating these five people is answering to this Japanese captain, um, he's got a whole sort of background story of his own and why he's trying to get this done in, in, a, in a very sort of rushed manner. Um, and so I'd say that overall, it's pretty interesting. It's pretty entertaining. There are, there are some tense moments. Um, there are a couple torture scenes, which hey, if, you're, if you're a bit queasy or you're really not into um, those aspects being sort of shown on screen... Again, they're not distastefully shown, but they're not overly enjoyable scenes either. Um, 
but I'd say the performances are very strong. Both uh, Zoshan and Li Bing, Bingbing were really great, um, working off of each other. There is a bit of, of, of expected sort of nationalist ideology coming out of the ending mess the, the message at the end of the film, which I think, as I said, is expected, but it's not over the top. It's not, it's definitely nothing that is anywhere up there with, say, Ipman or founding of a republic um, or some of those same feelings or sentiments that we've gotten in previous films coming from the mainland. And I, and I ended up, I, I'd say I, I really liked it with the exception of those couple of scenes that they have in there. Well, considering that it came out at the same time as the founding of Republic, uh, is it a propaganda film or is it just a straight up entertainment well, film? It, with a it's, I'd say it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, mm. It's very entertaining. Uh, it is, it is, again, it does have a little bit of a, of that propagandist message at the end, but it's nowhere near as strong as what you get in Ipman or founding of a Republic. Um, but there, there is a sense of that there. And again, this is sort of, you do have a Japanese, you know, captain who's painted as this, um, rather despicable guy, um, mm. you know, and, but at the same time, you've got a lot of Chinese people who are collaborating with him that are equally despicable. And interestingly enough, of course, you can pretty much pick who's not going to make it out of the film because of things like collaboration, right? <laughs> so yeah, it does, it, it does carry that sentiment there. It's, it's, it's definitely easy to read things like that, but it's not overt and in your face uh, so much that it detracts from the enjoyment of the film. So would you recommend it to say someone like me? I would say yes. I would say because you have an understanding of the time period, because you've seen things like founding of a republic and you've seen Ip Man and you've seen things where the nationalism sentiment is very, very high, I think you would go into this film and you'd probably come away with um, a, a more a, a better sense of entertainment because it's not so in your face as some of those other films. <laughs> Let's move on to our West Screen films this week. And our first film we want to talk about is coming from Ang Lee, and that is the film Taking Woodstock. Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about Taking Woodstock? Sure. Um, Taking Woodstock is um, based on a book written by Elliot Tiber. I believe this is his name. Uh, Elliot Tiber's family ran um, a motel in, uh, in New York town that... Um, eventually became the venue for Woodstock, the big concert that was in uh, 1969. That was, a uh, how long was it, Paul? Four, three days? Four, five days? Yeah, something like that. A, yeah, a big music festival. Um, what happened was that, because this, this you know, was a hippie concert, so a lot of town, small town, turned it down. But uh, T-Bur uh, Elliot, he sees it, he saw it as a way to revive the family business. So he decided to, uh, as, as a chairman of the town's, Chamber of Commerce, he decided to take the concert in. And so the whole film um, chronicles how he helped put the concert together and, and the actual uh, construction of the concert and, and the, the few days where uh, the concert from Tiber's point of view. Although, um, interestingly, you never see any actual footage of the concert. You only see it. Uh, you only see the venue. You only see the stage from a very, very, very far away because it is a very, very big field. Um, and actually, that was one of the flaws of the film for me: is that how can you make a film about Woodstock and not show any footage of Woodstock? Hmm. That's what I think. And you know, I'm sure Ang Lee has his own intentions about. You know, he's gonna say it's about the character, and the joke is that the character never end up actually seeing the concert, so he's gonna use that. But to me, I think that's sort of a, a cop-out, really. I think it was just trying to cover up the fact that the footage was maybe too expensive to buy or or something like that. But um, as a character study, or as, a, as a drama itself, um, it doesn't really impress dramatically because um, it kind of turns into a comedy about, you know, concert, how to put together a concert and everything. And the, the characters are just not really that compelling. You have the 
concert organizers who just sort of pop up and say a lot of hippie things and then and then they go away and then come back during the concert says how great it is and then go away again and the main character uh, elliot elliot he's just not there's a lot of things that hinted about him about how his family essentially ropes him to stay with the family and and take care of the family business and there um there was something about sexual orientation and and uh things about how he sort of liberates himself but you know these are things i've seen before and i think the problem is not in ang lee's direction or or his or the screenplay that i had to work with i think i think it's just that the topic itself is just not very interesting mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. that's that's what i think paul have you seen the movie or are you interested in the I movie i have not seen it and i have to be honest in saying i have no interest in it um this is yeah. due in part to my own upbringing and my mother's probably going to kill me for saying this but my parents were hippies ah. and i can remember i have i have very embarrassing photos of myself in tie-dye shirts and bell-bottom jeans <laughs> with bowl haircuts i can remember times being back you know when my parents when i was very young some a couple of my very first memories were they used to have this sort of hippie van and I can remember them sitting in the back of the hippie van with me just kind of sitting there and they'd be smoking weed with their friends. And, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, man. And I just uh, maybe because I was brought up in that period, I just have no interest, no liking, no nothing for anything to do to do with <laughs> the whole peace, love. You know, the, the, the I like some of the music of that period, but not enough. I, you know, to actually I couldn't I couldn't sit through the Woodstock documentary. Because when you see the Woodstock revelers, you know, with their their little peace symbols and, you know, about their dancing in the field and rolling in the mud, you know, it just brings back these memories of when I was a kid. And I'm like, no, I don't want to remember that period. <laughs> no, I've, I think every even your parents might not be very fond of this movie because I think Ang Lee doesn't understand this whole period very well. He just sort of he relies on, you know, CGI, the typical stuff for, you know, things like a drug feud. Yeah. Um, drug feel like the the whole lsd thing and that's what a lot of directors who don't understand this thing that's what they fall back on yeah. using cgi a lot of colors and then you have these long hair people all mellow and it just looks like what a modern person would portray that period as opposed to someone who actually lived through it yeah. and that's the problem of taking woodstock it's it's based on a book that's written by someone who actually was there but it doesn't play like a movie that would accurately portray the period mm. And it's interesting because I was listening to another podcast on movies and they were talking about this film and um, one of the commentators was saying that he was he was a bit hesitant because he thought that he was going to go in and it was going to be like 30 minutes of ex- ex- exposition and then it was going to be nothing but like stock footage from Woodstock and from the documentary and, and the bands playing and stuff. And he said he was you know somewhat pleasantly surprised when that wasn't really part of the film. Uh, as he had had expected. Mm-hmm. So, I guess for some people, if you're if you're more familiar with what Woodstock was, um, you know the the music of that period, the things that went on during that period, then you you might go into this film looking for something else, and that maybe it's providing something else. But if you're somebody from the outside who really doesn't have any exposure or understanding of what Woodstock is then it may be really hard to sort of understand, especially if they're not showing, uh, you know, stuff from the concert. Because as much as I rail against it, I, I have to admit it was a very amazing event, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it did was dealing with a lot of social issues at the time, you know, um, everything from from civil rights to women's rights to the free love movement to being against war and being against Vietnam. I mean, it was all sort of packaged up in everything that was going on at the time. And yeah, you know, they're, they, they, they associate uh, the hippies with, you know, taking drugs and sort of uh, some of the negative aspects of it. But there was, I think there was, there's a lot of positive messages that can probably come out of some of what's in the film uh, or, or what's being, you know, portrayed in that time period as well. Um, yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't need to see... A concert film but i think a middle ground between what you and i were talking about either so somewhere between uh hour and a half of concert footage and and two hours of straight up uh character drama i think that that would have made a really good woodstock film mm-hmm. and that's not what taking woodstock is sadly mm-hmm.
Our next film for West Screen uh, is actually kind of a little bit of an enigma. I'm not sure if this really qualifies as West Screen or East Screen or somewhere in between um, because it is Astro Boy, um, which is originally based on the uh, Mighty Atom manga and comic books uh, from Japan, uh, later renamed in the translations uh, as Astro Boy, the English translations, and that name is sort of stuck in, in some of the later animations, uh, uh, remakes of the series. That name has sort of carried, been carried along with it. And so here we have the Hollywood film, but it's also being co-produced. I know that a lot of the animation was done in Hong Kong, was also being done in China. Um, it's been in a lot of the, the, you know, talked about a lot in the newspapers here. Um, so... Let me talk a little bit about the film because you haven't seen this yet, Kevin. No, um, no, I haven't. Yeah, yeah but um, I've, I've seen it and I have to say on record that I am a little bit biased because I I did like reading the mangas and, and I did see um, the, the animated series. And as such, um, I probably got, you know, that history that I have with, with the, the property probably skewed my take on it a little bit. Um, so I'll try and and step away from that and, and give an impression uh, for somebody who's maybe not familiar with it or, or for kids. Um, so first, if, if you're a fan of the series, as I am um, going into this, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed. Um, it's hmm. fairly true to much of the original material. Um, it's the story of a young boy named Toby in Japanese, he's a, he was originally called Tobio, if I remember correctly. Um, and he he is the son of a, a, a famous scientist, and through an accident, he, he dies. The scientist is, is devastated at the loss of his son, and so he tries to recreate them. Now, they're living in this place called Metro City. It's a futuristic city. Um, in, this, in this instance, Metro City is a flying city that science has been able has enabled them to actually lift off of the ground because the ground has become very dirty and polluted and they thought that by living in in the clouds they would give nature a chance to sort of rebuild itself but unfortunately it doesn't work cuz basically they take all their trash and they keep dumping it dumping it down on the planet so the problem uh, hasn't resolved itself they've just become sort of ignorant of it but metro city is sort of this beautiful utopia um where they have robots who basically do all the work for people and so the scientist decides he, he will create a robot version of his son. And he does so. And he programs in the memories you know, using some, some DNA that he has of, of uh, his son. And so the robot thinks for a long time that he's actually his son. But the scientist can't, uh, the, the, his father can't come to accept him as, as the, the, real, the real son because he's not real. So it's a little bit of a Pinocchio story. It deals with rejection deals with issues of, you know, um, what does it mean to be quote-unquote human, things like, you know, do, do machines have feelings, a lot of really deep stuff that I think is probably going to be missed in many ways by younger audiences. Um, the, the other issue that we can look at is the character design, hmm. which for, I'd say, the first 30 minutes of the film is pretty close. Um, the initial design of, of, of Tobio... Or, or Toby or Astro himself. I didn't really like it first, but 
again, going from 2D to 3D, you know, it can be a bit of a jarring transition. I think they, they did okay with it. Um, where I think they sort of dropped the ball is they introduce, they, in a very much a Hollywood style, they interview, introduce these team of friends uh, that mm. he ends up meeting down on, on the surface uh, when he gets sort of exiled from Metro City. Um, and the, the, this group, this like little group of orphans that he teams up with, their, their look and feel is very Hollywood stylized, um, very young hipsterish kids. They don't look, they don't look, they look like, look like they fit in sort of the Astro Boy universe, if you will. So I think on a fan level, I was a little bit disappointed. Um, they, there is some action. Um, but it, again, it's, it's. It's done on on a level for children, so you know they're they're not dealing with um, too many serious issues outside of of sort of the death of the main character, um, which happens very early on. And I guess if you were coming into this fresh, if you'd never had any exposure to it um, as an as an adult, there's some humor there. There's there's definitely some references to different ideologies at play. Um, some of the voice work that's being done, you've got people like Nicolas Cage and Bill Nye who are good, but they're not great. Um, they're, they're, nothing really captures your attention in terms of the characterizations. Um, I think Bill Nye is actually voicing two characters at, at one point. Uh, Donald Sutherland, he's sort of the, the general who's like the main antagonist. Um, and, but ultimately, there's, it, it lacks the feel of the animes or some of the original manga. There's a real sense of naivete and and super innocence, uh, typically about a lot of uh, the original stories, and a lot of that's missing here. I'd say if you're an adult, if you're a fan, a little bit disappointing. If you're a kid, you'll probably get a big kick out of it. Well, Astro Boy was produced by Hong Kong's only Maji Studio. So do you think, Paul, they, after this film, they have a future in animation? Or well, the animation, the animation, I'd say, I, I can't fault it. I mean, it, it, it's nice, um, considering it's not Pixar and not DreamWorks, who are really the two, the two big ones. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it holds up as an animated film. It's just, I think, in terms of the content, it's a little bit lacking. Um, I know that uh, in the... And there's a New York Times review in which they they weren't they weren't um, overly critical, but they weren't overly generous with the film either. And actually, Frederick Schutt, who um, is a famous manga author, and he was the actual original translator of um, Mighty Adam into English as Astro Boy. He actually commented, he left a, a comment on the posting of the online posting, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes of the article. And he gave his take on it, which I think was very, very interesting. And he, he, again, he tried to approach it from the sense of sort of a child going in and experiencing this for the first time. So he was fairly generous with it. Um, but again, I think that if you're somebody who's looking for a very sort of hardcore reinterpretation of, of the genre, uh, you're going to feel Hollywood's touch here a little bit too much. And if you're simply an adult who's never really had exposure to the series, um, you may be mildly entertained, but I don't think there's anything as... It's no, nowhere near as sophisticated as something like Up, um, or I don't think that the jokes are anywhere near as entertaining as or, or self-referencing as something like Monsters vs. Aliens. So you may be a little bit bored. But again, if you're a kid and you're, you know, you're into robots and you're into being able to fly, this is, you know, this is Superman for kids, basically, um, that, that sort of sense of wonder. So I think for, for most young kids, if you've got young kids, take them to see it because it'll work really well for them.
right. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for our east screen and west screen sections. Uh, coming up next, we want to talk about our Flying Buddha Picks of the Week. And this week, we're going to stick with the Halloween theme because we've got Halloween coming up uh, just a few days. So we'd like to share with you our picks um, dealing with a little bit of the darker side of uh, Asian cinema. Uh, Kevin, do you have a, a Halloween pick you might want to select for the audience? Yeah, I got a oldie but a goodie because um, just because it's Halloween doesn't mean you can't be scared and have fun at the same time. So my pick this week is uh, Stephen Chow's Out of the Dark, um, a fairly underrated film in Hong Kong, uh, directed by Jeff Lau. It, um, it's about uh, Stephen Chow as a ghost hunter who usually um, spends just one night at a housing estate hunting down these two ghosts that he helped send to hell in the first place, uh, in the first film. It's a very, very funny film, um, just like what you expect from a Stephen Chow film, but it also is surprisingly scary and gory. Um, so for me, like I said, just because it's Halloween doesn't mean you can't have fun. So I would say you can laugh, you can scream. Well, it's not really scream-worthy, but you'd be creeped out. Um, and it is one of um, Stephen Chow's uh, darkest films, I think. But it's also equally fun. Yeah, and, so and, that'll be my... and that was one that was kind of hard to get for a while. Uh, from what I remember, it was... Uh... Not readily available, um, but it recently had a re-release, if I'm thinking correctly. Yes, two years ago, there was a remastered, I believe, from Celestial Pictures. But yeah, there is, uh, I'm not sure if it's widely available now, but I remember at the time, two years ago or so, when the release came out, it was easily, it can easily be bought. So I hope it's still in print, and if it is, then definitely grab a copy for Halloween. All right, and my pick this week is... Um, called Ra Tree, Flower of the Night, coming from Thailand. This is a 2003 film. Now, when I saw this in the cinema locally, um, it had a different title. It was called Bupa Ra Tree, um, but it's the same film. And this is basically every ghost story you've ever seen, um, every cliche that you've ever seen, kind of thrown together, wrapped up with a bow, and and put into into this film. And it's it's interesting because it's at some points really scary, um, but at other points it's insanely funny because they're making fun of a lot of ghost genre films um, from everything from The Exorcist to other Asian ghost stories. Um, and there are, there, there's a twist in there, but you can kind of see the twist coming. I won't reveal what the twist is, but basically this is the story of a, of a young girl who falls in love with a boy and basically, uh, and the girl's name is, is Ratri. And she ends up going off with this boy, sleeping with him. Um, but then uh, she gets pregnant. Turns out that the boy um, actually just slept with her because he wanted to win a bet. Uh, he wasn't really as nice as he thought, but then he regrets and he wants to go and find her. And, um, Later, later finds, you know, they find her and they find out that, you know, she's she's become this ghost. Um, so then it's the rest of the film is basically um, the, this group of tenants um, in, in this building that she is, you know, that, that has this room that she has haunted trying to get rid of her. If you're looking for something a little bit traditional, but also a little bit different, um, you might want to give this one a try, turn the lights down and you'll definitely be entertained. So you're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. All right, well, I think that's going to do it uh, for our show this week. Hopefully you're getting these through iTunes, but you can check back at www.concast.com on occasion. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with Kevin, you can always check up with him on his blog or on his Twitter account. Yes, The Golden Rock, one word. And also the blog is at Love Hong Kong Film, lovehjfilm.com. All right, and... Until then, we hope that you've had a, if you're in Asia, you've had a nice uh, Cheongyong festival. 
And if you're elsewhere, we hope you have a happy and safe Halloween. And we will see you next time. See you next time. Happy Halloween, everybody. My monster from his slab began to rise And suddenly, to my surprise He did the match He did the monster match The monster match It was a graveyard smash He did the match It caught on in a flash He did the match He did the monster match From my laboratory in the castle east To the master bedroom of the vampire's piece The ghouls all came Oh my god, now I'm remembering future cops. Yeah. No, no, Paul, oh, stop. Ah, uh, Dickie Chung is Go, Go, was he Goku or Gohan? I don't remember, but yeah, that was classic. I think Cheng Mi Yao is Tan uh, Lee, and who was Andy? Andy was, Andy was like, um, he was the guy with the mask, right? Uh, Vega or. Oh, no, Ikin. Ikin was the one with the mask. Was he? Was, was he? Or is he Guile? I no, guy. I think but, I, no, I, I, think all I remember was, was uh, Simon the... Yam is the Indian guy. Oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> Best. Ah, classics. They played the monster match. The monster match.